Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we plead that you hear our prayers. Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you that we are able to gather and to hear your word, Lord, to praise you for all that you have done for us. Lord, we do pray for pastors. He is taking some time off, Lord. Just be with him and Mandy. Refresh them. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the way that you're moving in this community. Father, we love you. Lord, we want to see you move today. Be with us as we turn to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Church, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and at this time we're going to go ahead and dismiss our children to Children's Church. We're going to go with Miss Edith this morning. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 27. If you're there, you can say word. The word of the Lord, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. We're returning this morning to a series that we've been working through titled Joy Even Though. And we spent the first two weeks, several weeks ago, if you weren't with us, looking at Paul's situation. And Paul opens this letter giving kind of a, a situation report of where he is and what he's going through. And we spent this, this time looking at Paul's ability to keep joy even though he was in a horribly difficult situation. And today he's shifting his focus from being about him and his situation to being about the focus of the Philippian church and not only what he wants them to do, but he's gonna give them some practical advice about dealing with attacks. And he's also gonna tell them how to maintain you, you, uh, unity within the body. See, while Paul has already said that he is proud of and loves the Philippian church, this doesn't mean that they were the perfect church. It doesn't mean that they were without conflict. We'll actually see in verse 2 of chapter 4 that he seems to indicate that there's conflict between two women in the church. And we've heard Pastor Phil say often that if the requirement to be a part of this church was perfection, none of us would be here. We would all be disqualified from being part of the church. It just isn't possible to go through this life without some kind of conflict. 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't practical things that we can do to experience unity. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. I've titled today's message, Joy in Unity. Joy in Unity. If you'd like to take notes, there is a note sheet inside your bulletin. But before we get into the heart of today's passage and the advice that Paul has for the church he's writing to, he begins this new section with a verse that I really think sets the groundwork for everything else to be possible. Look back at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could actually perhaps better translate this verse to say, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. So what does action that is worthy of the gospel actually look like? To be able to answer that question, we need to know the heart of what the gospel is about. See, the gospel is about love. And therefore, to live worthy of the gospel, we should be loving. The gospel is about justice, so we should strive for justice. The gospel is about life. The gospel is about liberty, so we shouldn't be stuffy legalists. The gospel is about humility, and therefore, we should be humble and gladly serve others. See, these are the things that every Christian should do as citizens of heaven. If you think about different countries and states and cities, you start to get in your mind this idea and these certain stereotypes. You think of someone from England and maybe you think they all drink tea, which I'll tell you is not true. Or you think of the wonderful people from the state of Texas and you think everyone drives a truck, which just isn't true. Just about any place you can name that you're familiar with, we start to see those stereotypes pop up. Paul is saying that as Christians, what should identify you as citizens, what people should think of when they think of Christians is by your conduct being worthy of the gospel. Constantly, we need to be looking at our conduct and ask, does this properly represent who I am as a Christian? Does this properly represent the kingdom that I serve? Several years ago, my pastor found me in a Chipotle and he asked, why don't you have a bumper sticker for the church on your car? Well, because then I would have to think through as I'm driving through traffic, is what I'm doing representative of the sticker on my car? Is what I'm doing as a Christian representative of the kingdom that we're called to serve? Paul breaks down what he's calling the church of Philippi to in two sections. First, we're going to look at what they're to do in light of external opposition what they're supposed to do in light of people being against them from the outside. And secondly, we're going to look at his call for spiritual unity within. Picking up in verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The first thing we need to see is that we are to stand together against external opposition. We're to stand together against those outside that would attack us. Paul knows firsthand just how much pressure he can face for the sake of the gospel. He's been attacked ruthlessly over his stance for the gospel. And honestly, can we really say that we blame people with some of the stuff that Paul said 
that they were kind of not super comfortable with what he was saying. I mean, Paul says some really tough, hard-to-swallow things. But see, the problem is, is this idea that we could face opposition isn't something that originated with Paul. Jesus himself warned us that because of what we stand for, the world is going to hate us. The world is going to want to stop the influence of Christianity because of our stance for God's word. See, this is a theme that goes from one end of the Bible to the other. Think of the ridicule that Noah faced for building the ark. Think of the threats of Saul against David for being God's chosen one. Think of the many prophets that faced backlash for their stances for God. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den for praying. Jesus himself was killed by those who were supposedly leading the church of God because Jesus stood for God's word instead of their rules and authority. Paul and the other apostles all face the same kind of opposition. Many of them would die for their stances for the gospel. The church fathers would face persecution on and off throughout the history of the church. The reformer and Bible translator William Tyndale was convicted of heresy and burned at the stake for standing for God's word in opposition to the established church. The Puritans were killed and run out of their countries for saying, we stand for God's word alone. Even today, the church is labeled enemy number one by a culture that can't even decide what a man and a woman is. See, we may not face death like many of our Christian brothers and sisters in the past did, but we can face losing our job, our place in society. Some places around the country are even trying to make it illegal to stand for Christian values in opposition to some of the craziness going on in our world. If you stand for God's word, truly stand for God's word, you are going to face opposition from a world that hates everything that God is about. So Paul urges this church to be about unity, and we'll cover this more in the next point, but the best thing that Satan can do to make a church completely useless in the world is divide them from within. If there is fighting within, then the church is not focused on extending God's kingdom. Think back to 9-11. We have so much division in this country, and this hasn't just come within the last six, eight, ten years. This has been building for a long time. But when that day happened, what happened? This country united. This country stood for something. They stood for a common goal, a common objective. A house divided cannot stand. Many people hear that and they think of Abraham Lincoln, but did you know that the Bible tells us that? If we're divided against ourselves, we won't have the same effectiveness that we're called to in the world. We'll come back to unity in a minute, but Paul also calls for teamwork and fearlessness for the mission. We're going to look at a couple things here that are absolutely essential for those that will face opposition. The first is teamwork. Verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, Paul expected the people to continue with the mission even after he left the church. Paul's method with these churches wasn't a new way to promote ministry. Jesus said the exact same thing when he gave the Great Commission. Paul is calling people to be united in their common goal. 
Think about a football team. On a football team, there's unity. And that doesn't mean a good football team there's unity. Maybe not my Cowboys, but (laughs) there's unity not because everyone's playing the same position or they're doing the same thing. That would be uniformity. There's unity because they're all focusing on the same goal. They're trying to accomplish the same thing. Every player doing his own job helps the team move forward toward a common goal. However, there's also a sense of a military stance. In this teamwork against external opposition, if you've ever served in the military, you've ever seen a good military movie, then you've seen this. And I'm not talking about a military movie like Rambo, where it's one guy against the world. I'm talking about movies or or experiences where there's a united team. They're focused on making a stance against the enemy. But what happens to that unit if it becomes divided and starts trying to do their own thing? Each person is off doing their own thing. The line will fall and the military will be destroyed. Paul's point here is whether the church, whether we like the military language or not, is an army. Think about it this way. Why is so much military language used in the armor that we're supposed to wear, in the battles that we're supposed to fight? See, Satan isn't just out to try to prank the church or try to kind of mess with us. Satan wants to completely destroy Christians. He wants to destroy the church. So when he can get God's army, which is the church, to let their lines down and become divided, he makes the church ineffective. That's why you see so many churches that aren't making a kingdom impact because you go into the church and they're so busy fighting with each other that they aren't even focused on what their mission is actually to be. Paul had begun to see this internal fighting begin with the Philippians. Chapter four, verse two. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syneche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Don't let internal squabbles make you useless to the mission God has called us to. I would guess most people in here have seen the movie Remember the Titans. That movie starts, they're divided. They are fighting internally. But what happens by the end of the movie? They've united with a common goal. They go out there with the same objective. They stand for the same thing. They're not letting division keep them from their objective. Back at verse 27. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. The second essential to facing opposition is that we must stand fast. We must stand fast. What are we to stand fast to? See, there's both a positive and a negative to this. First, we have to acknowledge the positive. We have to understand what we are standing for. And when we understand what we are standing for, we know what we're called to stand against. We must stand for the gospel. This has to be the sole focus of the church. This is what we're called to do. We're to stand for the gospel. But see, many churches, unfortunately, especially in our current climate, think their primary goal is to be political. 
We'll see in a minute that the church is to make political stances based on what Scripture says. But we don't do politics for the sake of doing politics. The gospel is the sole focus for the church. That's it. Anything else is a distraction, and we must avoid distractions. My pastor, but what about all the programs and stuff that the church does? Well, I ask you, what's the focus? Is it the gospel? If it is, then keep on pushing. If it's not, then we need to ask, is this the best thing for us to be doing? See, we just finished up VBS last week. And can I tell you that the focus of VBS is not to just bring new families into the church. It's not just to provide a place where kids can go for some daycare. The sole focus of VBS is to share the gospel with kids that may never step into a church any other time. To point to the love of God and to share the good news of Jesus with them. The moment VBS becomes a week's worth of daycare or simply trying to get more families into the church, we need to shut it down. We've lost our focus. We are to stand on the gospel as the driving force of absolutely everything we do. Is this extending the gospel? Is this extending God's kingdom? Assuming that they are rooted in the gospel, in the word of the God, in the word of God, we are to hold fast to our beliefs, our convictions, and our principles without compromise, regardless of the personal cost. This book is what drives us. This is our source of what we are to do, how we are to love people, how we are to be with our neighbors, how we are to be in our workplaces and with our families. But that means we likewise must stand against something. And that would be anything that works in opposition to the gospel. So you don't have to look far to determine that the world has gone absolutely mad. Satan knows that if he can get the culture as far away from God and his word as possible, and then use the culture to force Christians to fall away from his word, and it is working, there are countless churches that have fallen away from the true gospel. If he can do that, then he's winning. So we have to stand for truth and we must stand against falsehood. We must make a stand against the things that we know based on scripture to be false. This has been made to seem like a political battle. So to even mention some of these things, I'm sure some of you are shifting awkwardly in your seats. It makes us uncomfortable. But in a world that denies God's creation and the way God has designed mankind to be, we must stand for what God's word says. That means as Christians, we must do it lovingly, but we must stand against the idea that we can change our gender. As Christians, we must stand against the murder of the unborn. It's not about being political. It's about as Christians standing for what God has said in his word. Paul was given the option to avoid preaching Jesus is the only way to heaven. And Paul said, I can't do that. Even if it offends some people, I have to stand on truth. And if we are to stand for righteousness, then we must stand against sin. The same thing, the world doesn't want us to call the things that they want to do sin. But that's what God calls it. We will never fear our opponents if we fear God more. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body both soul and body in hell. We need to speak the gospel fearlessly and be prepared for conflict 
when you do. Second part of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The third essential for facing opposition is a sign. Paul says that the opposition we face will be a sign to us of our salvation. We've already talked about this some, but Jesus told us that when we stand for God, the world will stand against us. John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you find that the world agrees with you, we're in dangerous territory. But while no one wants to face opposition, I know I surely don't, we can rest that opposition is a good sign that we are striving for God. And on that, it brings us to our final essential for facing opposition. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Suffering for the cause of Christ is a gift, just as our faith is a gift. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. To suffer for Christ is not only a command, but believe it or not, it is a privilege. Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, we've talked a lot today about the, the military themes of this. And while it is sad that anyone would ever lose their lives in defense of this country, there are so many people that are proud and willing to lay down their lives for something they believe in. They're happy to put their bodies and their very existence on the line for a cause that they've invested in. Shouldn't we as Christians be all the more ready to suffer for Christ? Chapter two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not only are we to stand against external opposition, but we are to serve one another with humble compassion. 
serve one another with humble compassion. See, Paul's already shown us many reasons why we should be unified as a body. But now he's going to give us some practical advice about unity. We're going to see not only the basis for unity, but the command for unity and the expressions of unity. Back to verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... First, we see the basis for unity, and Paul gives us this in a fourfold motivation. First, we have the motivation of encouragement in Christ. The motivation of encouragement in Christ. See, there's a blessing in knowing Christ. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, God sent his son into the world to save us from our sins and buy our way into heaven. And unfortunately, not everyone will come to know him. The Bible makes clear that not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will come to know Jesus. So we should rejoice if we are the one one of the ones that gets to know him. But number two, we must also have the motivation of his love. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus loved us before we loved him. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Jesus loved us before we did anything worthy of his love. Anything that could buy our own ways into his good graces. He loved us first. First John continues saying, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love, like Jesus' love, should not be based in what someone can do for us or what they've done to us. Our love, like Jesus' example, should be to love people regardless of what they've done. But third, we have the motivation that we share in the fellowship of the Spirit. See, every Christian brought into fellowship with each other by the mutual sharing of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us has the same Spirit. And finally, we're motivated by affection and sympathy. Just like love, we can share in these things because God has first shown us affection and we can have mutual affection for others because we know what God has done for us. But next we have the command for unity. The command for unity. Verse two. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, Paul's put a lot of time and effort and concern into this church and the church is almost like a child for Paul. I think of Audrey and Jackson. and They're cute when they're here and they seem to get along. I'll tell you what, they do not always get along. I frequently have to say, why would you say that? Was that nice? Be nice to your brother. Be nice to your sister. Paul is saying, like a father, that he desires the unity of those he loves. He doesn't want them fighting because he knows that it is not good for them or for anyone else. So like the parent that must tell siblings to keep their hands to themselves and to play nice, Paul is telling us to be unified, have the same mind, think alike, and love each other. And by doing that, Philippi, you can complete my joy, says Paul. See, the same is true for the church today. We can make the Father happy when we as a church have the same mind and the same love for each other. And finally, we have the expressions of unity. 
the expressions of unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. First, we have to have the same mentality. We have to be like-minded and strive for a common understanding and genuine agreement. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul gives us practical advice for how to do this in chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But secondly, we're to maintain the same love. Maintain the same love. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This isn't a loved, a love based on attraction, but on a choice to love. He's saying we've committed to be part of a church, a part of a body, so I'm going to choose to love those I'm in community with, even when, even when they are not particularly lovable. And I'm going to trust that they will do the same for me. They will love me when I am not particularly lovable. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 13 continues, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is more than just a sentimental affection. It's called to be a sacrificial love, a sacrificial service for others. Third, we must reject selfishness. We must reject selfishness. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfishness is the root of every single sin without fail. It is putting ourselves before God and others. Even for Satan, this was the cause of his fall. He put himself before God's will. It was the source of sin being introduced to the world with Adam and Eve. And so many people spend their lives trying to build themselves up by tearing others down. But see, even if no one is outwardly hurt by our actions, selfishness breeds anger, resentment, and jealousy. No church is immune to this. And absolutely nothing can tear apart the body quicker. The Corinthian church is one of the absolute worst examples of this. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Discord and division are inevitable when people selfishly focus on their own agendas. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to be passionate about a ministry or a project. Oftentimes, it comes out of a genuine passion for an important ministry, but it results in a narrow focus. I remember several years ago, I was 
part of a, a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And this was a very, very small ministry in a very large church. We were one of many ministries, but the leaders wanted us to be the primary focus. They wanted to be the ones announced on Sunday. They always wanted to be mentioned. They always wanted to be, they had a narrow focus. And it caused division amongst the leaders and the pastors. Because we were so focused on what we wanted, which was something good, that we couldn't see what else was around us. But fourth, we must forsake empty conceit. We must forsake empty conceit. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul wants his people to reject an elevated or exaggerated sense of themselves. See, the church isn't about the pursuit of personal ambitions. The person Paul's talking about is that person that believes they're always right, no matter what. You could call it hubris. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So Paul says we're to put on humility of mind. Humility of mind. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, this is the very opposite of selfishness and empty conceit. This needs to be the bedrock of the Christian's character. We need to root our humility in Jesus and let that become our state of being. He goes on to say that we shouldn't merely look out for our own personal interests. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Notice the merely. See, this is extremely key. Many Christians have taken this to the absolute extreme where they don't think that they're supposed to promote anything. They don't think they're supposed to take care of themselves. They don't think they're supposed to rest. They just think, I'm supposed to just keep on giving and just keep on giving. But as Christians, we must look after our own needs or we'll make ourselves unfit for service. That's why it is so incredibly important right now that pastor take this trip so he has time to rest and refresh so that when he comes back, he is ready to continue leading us. Second part of verse four. But also to the interests of others. See, the church is a family, and most of you at some point have had to make a decision in a family, or sometimes you've had to do something that is the best for the best of someone else in that family. See, little Timmy want, needs braces, but I want a new truck. Well, the truck's going to have to wait until the braces are taken care of. See, there's a, there's a prioritization that happens because we value the other person. This holds true in the church. Sometimes we have to set aside what we want or a preference or maybe even something I'm passionate about for the sake of someone else. See, the point is not to pick on someone's passion. The priority, the way that Paul says that we find joy in unity is by placing someone else as more important than ourselves. And I'll tell you, a church is a breeding ground for preferences. I'm sure we could all name many. But Paul says, don't make yourself the most important. Consider others. That is how you find joy. That is how you be unified as my people who are called to my mission. I'm gonna go ahead and invite Josh back up. And as we close today, I wanna give you five practical ways that you can grow in humility. First, by reflecting the cross of Christ. 
There is absolutely no pride at the cross. Think of the old hymn, it was my sin that held him there. When we daily choose to reflect on the cross, we look at a Savior hung on the worst execution device in the history of the world and say, I have absolutely no basis for pride. But secondly, we need to reflect the glory of Christ. Every single person, regardless of whether they are a Christian or not, will one day bow, the feet, bow their feet, bow their knee at the feet of Jesus. Every single person. Third, we need to reflect on God's word. It's really hard to remain self-focused when we are daily in the word because we are daily seeing examples of how Jesus and his disciples and many others put others first. Fourth, through prayer. You find yourself in conflict with someone, nothing can cut through that faster than praying for that person. Do it the next time you find yourself in conflict with someone. Try praying for them and see if you can stay angry at them. Good luck. But finally, through serving others. Choosing to take action, to put others first, to say, I'm going to set aside what I want to make you number one, to make you the priority. It all comes down to Jesus. Jesus set the absolute perfect example of how to put others first. He came to earth and lived a perfect life for you and for me. He went to a cross that I remind you he didn't want to go to. He prayed, Lord, let this pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. He died a horrible death and was raised three days later because he prioritized his people. The church must reflect his example. But perhaps you're here today and this all seems foreign to you. Pastor, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you that he endured opposition unlike anything we could ever possibly imagine and died the death he died for you personally with your name on his tongue? He died, and today, if you haven't already entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he wants you to be part of this family he wants you to be part of this body. How will you respond? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing a last song. And I challenge you that maybe there's work you need to do with the Lord. Maybe you haven't come into relationship with Jesus and you need to take that step. But maybe you haven't committed to being a part of a body called the church. Today's that day. There is such incredible, incredible benefit about being part of a body of like-minded believers who love each other and serve each other. Why would we not want to be part of that? So as I pray and as we sing, you work with the Lord where he calls you to. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, the perfect example of humility, the perfect example of love. Lord, if there's somewhere that we're not loving, as you've called us to, as you've set the example, Lord, let today be the day that we turn from that. 
Let today be the day that we say, I'm going to serve as Jesus has called me to serve, putting the gospel first and putting your people first, just as you did for us. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in the only name that we know how, the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ.